Good morning, everybody. We're going to be in Psalm 128 today. Psalm 128. By way of immediate application, let's bow our heads in reverence to the Lord and let's pray. And let's read this psalm. Heavenly Father, Lord, unless your spirit is upon this time, it will be an hour filled with empty words. We are totally... 100% dependent upon you for everything, but specifically in this time to be built up, to be shown what it is that you want from us. And so, Lord, as we just sang and prayed together, show us Christ. Give us clear eyes and a clear heart and and a a readiness to receive what it is that you have for us in Psalm 128. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. It says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. It shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. In the Chronicles of Narnia, which is one of my uh, lifetime favorites of series of books, Some of you have seen the movie, maybe you have read the books. It's by C.S. Lewis, and the author um, has two girls, the two main characters, Susan and Lucy, are getting ready to meet Aslan the Lion for the first time, who represents Christ. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who I like there in the movie, uh, Mr. Beaver, I like the, uh, the British accent in the movie. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver prepare the children for their encounter. Ooh, says Susan, the youngest. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then isn't he safe? asked Lucy. Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king. An overarching theme of the Psalms that we've brought out over and over and time and time again as we've journeyed through the Psalms is that there are two clear paths that one can take. The way of the righteous, which is marked by fear of God and the blessing of God, and the way of the wicked, which is marked by a lack of regard for the Lord, and therefore curse, a curse. 
This same theme is again embedded in Psalm 128. The psalmist does something very interesting. He gives us an exceedingly practical snapshot of a man's house who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. And when I say house, I don't evidently mean his physical house, although the physical state of one's house might have a direct correlation or have some bearing on your metaphysical house. The psalmist speaking of his house is of his house, his family, his financial house, his domain, so to speak. There are three main points in the psalm, and each one is downstream from the previous. There is number one, fear. Downstream from fear is obedience, and downstream from obedience is house blessing, household blessing. So if we want the blessing of God, we must first obey Him. And if we want to obey Him, we must first fear Him. I hope to convince you today as we examine this psalm and the concepts surrounding it that the blessing of God is derived from the fear of God. The blessing of God is derived from the fear of God. So verse 1, let's just start at the top. Verse 1a, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. John Bunyan has a wonderful 121-page meditation on, it's just called a treatise on the fear of God. I don't have, I have it on Kindle, so I don't have a copy to show you, but it's readily available. I think it's like 99 cents on Amazon, so I highly commend that to you. He notes three reasons why in the beginning of that work, particularly his presence ought to make the godly one fear. He says, first of all, his presence is full of greatness and majesty. Often the scriptures point to the power of God on display in creation. The wind and the waves, the floods and the famines, pestilence and plague and fires and earthquakes. Modern man is blessed with a relative protection from these threats, right? But it really is only relative protection. Ask one of those thin-blooded South Texans about relative protection from the elements. We can't shield ourselves entirely from the harshness of this world. Storms still rage. Floods still overrun banks. Fires still break out. South Texas still freezes. Yet all those natural phenomenon that we are just floored by are but a whisper compared to the thundering greatness of the full presence of the Almighty God. A God who's full of majesty. The scripture tells us that he's like a sun burning with heat that can never be endured. It says he's like an ocean, heavy and deep and overwhelming. We simply cannot fathom the greatness of God. Bunyan also points to how God's presence always affects people in the Bible. Never does someone look up in the Bible in the presence of God and casually say, Oh, hey! Hey, God, it's you. Never happens. It's always only fear. Fear. When Jacob saw the vision of the ladder reaching up to heaven, he woke up and was afraid. In Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob wrestled the angel, he went away and was amazed that he was still alive. In Genesis 32, when God appeared uh, excuse me, that was in Genesis 32. When God appeared to Daniel, it seems it says there was no strength left in him. Daniel 10. When Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, it says he was completely undone. When John the Revelator, as we learned last week, 
from Pastor Matt as he's preaching through Revelation. When John the Revelator came before the great, comes before the throne of God, he sees the, the greatness of God and the inferiority or the, the, the dirtiness of man, and he weeps, trembling, fear. When angels appear, what are they constantly saying? Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Fear not. But the point is not that there's nothing to fear. It's rather that the message they bring is good news. The presence is still terrifying. The fact that God has come or His messenger has come is still terrifying. But the message that they have is good. They need not fear the message. They need not fear the moment. But that does not mean that they need not fear the God who brings the message. Think of things that are really, really good, but also incredibly terrifying. I like to, out in the country, uh, from time to time, there'll be big storms that roll through. I like to go out. I'm one of those weird people that goes out on the deck and is like, hey, look at that. You know, like, it's, storms are terrifying, but they're gorgeous and beautiful from a distance, right? Or, or guns. Think about the, 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 the power of a gun, a firearm. It need not do you any harm, and it may be there entirely for your protection, but there's a natural fear of the power of what it can do. And this leads to the third thing that Bunyan points to in his work, which is the goodness of God. The goodness of God as a source of godly fear. The grace and mercy of God should cause Christians to fear. The goodness of God, the grace of God should cause Christians to tremble. God says in Hosea that when He delivers Israel from exile and brings them home into their land, they shall seek the Lord and shall fear Him and fear His goodness in the latter days. They will fear His goodness. Why will they fear and tremble? For all the goodness of God as He forgives their sins, as He washes away all their iniquity, as He takes away all the other sin, He says, I will do these things, and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I will bring to them. You ever had a, you ever had a moment where you, you, something really bad almost happened? Maybe you got, almost got into a car accident, right? And you pulled over on the side. You had, it, was, it was so close that you had to pull over on the side of the highway and just go, wow. And you're sometimes even trembling. This is what is being communicated to us through the Scriptures as God relates to His people. When God saves you. Realize that the situation we all find ourselves in, which is default mode hell, everlasting torment, everlasting punishment, separation from an almighty God, and he saves you from that. That's a really bad near miss. It sets you about thinking that could have been really bad. That could have been horrible, yet for the grace of God go I. And I think it's appropriate here to pause and, and maybe shift gears a little bit and go to like 1 John chapter 4. Oftentimes you hear a verse, 1 John chapter 4 says, perfect love casts out what? 
fear. But if you go up one verse from 17, so you go to 16, it's talking about judgment, the judgment of God. Okay? You have, whatever 1 John chapter 4 means, it's not going to contradict the rest of the scripture that says that God is a fearful God. Okay? That would be an inappropriate use of 1 John chapter 4. Okay? God is love, so on and so forth. Perfect love casts out the fear of judgment. Okay? It casts out the fear of judgment, not the fear of God. Not the fear of God. Bunyan says that to receive the grace and mercy of God does not make men light and frothy. Perhaps one of the most evident signs of sickness of the modern American church is the flippancy in worship, of our worship. It doesn't seem that there is much fear of God across the landscape of American evangelicalism, and I think it manifests itself most apparently in worship. It is typically light and casual, or to use Bunyan's phrase, it's light and frothy. It's only friendly and silly and often obnoxious, but it is not fearful. It does not tremble. It does not cause anyone to tremble. It does not teach anyone to fear the Lord. We often even insist that it not cause, cause anyone to fear. There are consultants that get paid lots of money to go into churches and help churches not strike fear into anyone. Come as you are. Our worship is, now I'm not talking about, we don't have to be jerks, but come as you are. Our worship is informal, casual, laid back. Could there be anything more contradictory with what I've told you about God from the scriptures than that? It's completely at odds with the biblical message, which just goes to tell you that whoever is in those worship services, guess who's not? God. And if God were there in his goodness, his people would do what? They would tremble. They would have a reverence. They would be afraid. And when strangers stumble in, the lost stumbled in, they would tremble too. But they don't because God's people don't. So immediate application point one here. Judgment begins in the house of God. It does no good for me to make characters of people and evangelicalism as a whole out there. Shame on us, brothers and sisters. Shame on us. Understand that I am lumping myself into this sentiment, and I am guilty of it, and I have led in some of it, and I repent. Shame on us. Brothers and sisters, me and you need to repent for decades of light, frothy attitudes when it comes to the worship of an almighty God. And we need to repent now. Gathering out with saints to worship God Almighty isn't something we tolerate insofar as it suits my tastes. It's coming before a true and living God to hear Him speak. Let that sink in for a moment, what we're doing right now. 
You just thought you were coming to church today. You're coming before a true, mighty, majestic, fearful God to hear him speak to you, to to have him ask things of you, to bring you into greater service to him. Let's allow ourselves to be taught. When we are quieting our hearts and our minds at the beginning of worship, recognize what that's for. This is so, and it's so contrary. This is so, and it feels so weird. I know I've, I've, sometimes I feel bad that we've asked our, our service leaders to say, hey, make sure you get that moment of silence and let everybody get their hearts and minds. And it, it, it's un, if you've led, you're going to amen me on this. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to stand here and say, quiet your hearts and minds before the Lord. Why is that so uncomfortable for us to quiet our hearts and minds before the Lord? We're coming before the majestic and almighty God. Do you think it would have been hard for Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 to quiet his heart and mind before the Lord? No, because he was very aware of who he was coming before. And so immediate application point is this. If you haven't been gearing your heart for this moment, then at very least, take a few moments to do that and, and recognize what we're about to do. And service leaders, I know it's awkward, but don't rush it. Don't rush it. Let's take time coming together for worship with, with seriousness. If, if you get asked to be a service leader, take it really serious. You're leading God's people to come before his, a great and almighty, fearful God. Take it really serious. Immediate application point two is that when you repent, which we all have to repent, do it because like David in Psalm 51, you realize that against an almighty God, I have once again rebelled, and this is exactly the reason Christ had to die. Salvation is definitely free to you, but it's most definitely not free. Just because Jesus paid it all doesn't mean that the price wasn't really high. Explain to your children when you discipline them the worst thing about their disobedience, the worst thing about their light frothiness about which they go about life and sin is not that it inconveniences you or makes them look bad. It's that they're revolting against God. Teach them to fear him. Teach them to fear him. And I know, golly, you, I'm up here wrestling kids. I get it. Like, it, it's tough. It's a work to do. It's tough to teach. They're, children don't just come out naturally inclined to fear God. They come out the op- opposite way. And we have to teach them, as the Lord has taught us, to fear him. It takes work. It's good work, but it takes Work. Teach them to fear Him. Their fear of you won't be enough when they stand before an almighty God. If you just get a kid to be scared of you, that's not going to be good enough when they stand before the throne. They've got to fear Him. The fear of you won't be good enough when they are deciding whether or not to walk in righteousness, to walk as the righteous, or to walk as the wicked. And that leads me to my second point. Fear of the Lord leads to obedience to Him and of Him. So it's the second half of verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And then, necessarily, blessed is everyone who walks in His ways. Fears the Lord, walks in His ways. When the Lord is reverenced, 
His instructions are, pre- are precious. Let me say it again. Ready? When the Lord is reverenced or feared, His instructions are precious. It's, it's precious when a child, when children are eager to please their parents. You barely have to do anything with a child to discipline a child that, that is eager to please their parent. Just the thought of disappointing you makes them wilt. It's because they love you and revere you, and they hang on your words. Sometimes just asking you questions just to have your attention, just to hear your voice. You know, we've all had these moments with our children. Obedience to God's word is downstream from your fear and reverence for him. If you find yourself not excited about what is in the word of God, it's because you have lost sight of the one who wrote them. If you find yourself kicking back against obeying what is instructed in God's law, it's because you have lost sight of the one who is instructing it. Obedience, walking in his ways, is the natural outflow of fear and reverence. Woe to you. Woe to you who maintain vague spirituality and cry, Lord, Lord, yet ignore passages that crash up against your established lifestyle, your established life patterns. Woe to you who quote the doctrines of grace, yet keep on sinning that grace will abound. Woe to you. I'm all about the Bible until it calls me a sluggard. I'm all about the Bible until it tells me to get out of debt and live within my means, until it tells me to keep my eyes focused on my wife. Until it says a rebellious son must be corrected, and it's not just his personality. It's not, it's easy not to respect the sharpness of the sword when we don't actually fear the warrior who wields it. Repent. Repent. Fear God. Reverence God. Know his word. Trust and obey. There's no other way to follow Jesus. Not to just be happy in Jesus. There's no other way to actually follow Jesus but to trust and obey. So what, and what is downstream from fear of God is obedience to Him. And what is downstream of obedience to Him is real and lasting blessing from Him. So fear, obedience, blessing. The way the psalmist understands the blessing of God is expressed in terms of a well-ordered house, a well-ordered domain. Why is it this that he picks to illustrate the blessings of God? I think the first question we have to answer in order to answer this question of why does why he demonstrate the blessings of God within a family context is why, what is a family? What's a household? What's it for? Biblically speaking, the biblical vision for the family is one, one of the foundational governments and institutions of society. It's not an add-on or a hobby. It's the bedrock of God's created order for the world. So if you came in here thinking your family, it was, you've just kind of been, um, you know, you just did the thing. You, you grew up, you went to high school, you sowed your oats, you found a good girl, you settled down, you had the kids, you know, What's that, you know, why? Like, what is that for? There's some, many of us just drift. We don't ever actually answer the question of what is that for? It's, it is the, the foundational building block for society. 
We are servants to Christ, and his word assigns duties to the offices within this family. Husbands that are love their wives, Christ love the church, wives that are submit their husbands. But there also is a role for the family as a whole. What does obedience together look like? The family is assigned the duties of health, provision, and education. Health, provision, education. This is assumed in the creation mandate that God gives to Adam to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and rule over it. But as you examine the scriptures, we have to assume that, ev- that something even more potent is going on in the family than just making sure everyone is fed and warm and happy. And they can read. Right? There's got to there's, there's be more to it than that. Because of the way the scriptures talk about families, and they make warnings about things that break that family down. There's got to be something more nuclear going on here, more powerful going on here. If you look at Old Testament law that God handed to his people, he gives the death penalty for adultery in Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, chapter 22, verses 22 through 24. I'm just going to read that to you. The death penalty. If a man is found lying with, with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge evil from Israel. We'll stop there. He gives the death penalty in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18. He gives the death penalty for a rebellious son. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his voice, the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then the father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This is our son. He is stubborn and rebellious and will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones." You are to purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, that sounds pretty harsh to our 21st century ears, right? But we shouldn't assume that God is overreacting. If you're driving down the highway and you see orange cones and flashing lights and signs that say, slow down, danger, you don't say to yourself, well, them silly highway people with their cones and lights and stuff, it's probably no big deal. You assume there's a giant hole or some sort of danger on the other side of those cones, other side of those warnings. When we see these kinds of warnings to God's people, we should assume that on the other side of them is great, great, great danger. Something more potent is taking place within a rightly structured family. It should make us think, I wonder what God is protecting. We shouldn't assume that God is overreacting, but rather that he is protecting something very powerful and and even potentially very dangerous. If you don't buy what I'm saying, look around. Look at what we live in. Culturally, we have ran right past the cones and the flashing lights, free love, sex for everyone, abortion on demand. And 
what we are living in is a culture-wide meltdown. Crime rates, fatherlessness, drug addiction, suicide rates. This health and welfare and education for people living under your roof, it's not just a hobby. You're creating that and doing that for people. For the creation of people. People who will live forever. Families, here it is, families are where people who have immortal souls are made. You can't experiment with the formula for creating immortal immortal souls and expect there not to be some kind of fallout. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, you have never spoken with a mere mortal. It is immortals that you talk to, work with, play with, joke with, marry, snub, and exploit. You are either leading them toward immortal horrors or toward everlasting splendor. All day long, we are interacting with one another. We are helping each other towards being sons and daughters of glory or sons and daughters of hell. The stakes are incredibly high. They're incredibly high. Think of all the things that go into making people, houses, clothing, education, laughter, games, work, friendship, hospitality, and lots of chicken nuggets, right? Those things will pass away, but they are forming something that will last forever, They are either encouraging people to aim for Christ and for his everlasting glory, or they're not. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come into the world and set off a new reaction. The Lord will come and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. He came and became the curse that he might take that curse away and that we might get back to work through our obedience to him and under his blessing And this is what the blessing looks like spelled out in Psalm 128. Ready? So it's verse 1, then verse 2. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. It shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And may you see your children's children. May you get to be a grandpa. Peace be upon Israel. So if, so an if-then statement, ready? So if you fear and obey God, if you fear the Lord and walk in his ways, then what you work for, you will get to benefit from. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your own hands. What you work for, you'll get to benefit from. If you have a wife, so if you fear the Lord and walk in his ways, if you have a wife, your love that you have loved her with and expressed to her because you obey Ephesians, and you're washing her with the water of the word because you obey 1 Peter, makes her ever more lovely. Your love makes her more lovely. And she, like the fruit of the vine, brings much joy and hospitality and thriving to your home. And your children, if you have them, 
And if you are able-bodied and married, then you should have them. Biologically, adoption, fostering, see Psalm 127 for that. If you fear the Lord, obey, and walk in His ways, then your children, if you have them, will be like olive shoots coming out of the ground. Now, this is a, this is a Mediterranean agricultural metaphor, so allow me to explain. The root system of a healthy olive tree will produce new shoots that emerge from the ground all around the tree. So you have big tree, and then like the, you'll have root systems spreading out from olive tree, and then little shoots all around the trunk, and then as the tree gets bigger and grows, the more shoots shoot up and, and around. So an olive tree left to its own devices will become an olive grove with time. When the original tree runs its course, and any of these, any of these trees of a healthy olive tree will simply, it literally, use the inheritance, the composted material of the old tree as nutrients and continue the growth. Generation after generation after generation after generation. And any one of these little olive trees know exactly what their purpose is. Make olives. They get it. They understand their purpose because they've been, they inherited their purpose and they continue on in said purpose. The one who fears the Lord and walks in his ways is training up his children to do the exact same thing. What are you training up your children for? Like, and this, this, this makes you cause for pause and, and audit your life. The orientation of your home, what is it saying to them? How you spend your time. The rhythms of your life, what does it say to them? I find the phrase around your table to be really interesting. That the psalmist actually uses like olive shoots around your table. I'm, a, I'm kind of a table connoisseur. I, li- I like to see people's tables. When I go into a house, the first thing I usually notice about their house is what's their table look like? Like, is it big? Is it small? Is it TV trays? What's, what's it, what is a table? So it's assumed there is a common place where your family can gather around a table. That's a real practical implication, I think, from this psalm. I would recommend that you have a table that you all sit together around and eat meals together and do family worship at and talk and laugh and be together. Get a table. Use it. So the man who fears God and is walking in his ways is doing honest work and earning an honest living, wages. He's providing. He's eating from his own hand. His wife is a joy to him, and all who are in his house, he's replicating this fear and obedience to his children, all with an eye towards seeing his children's children. What does that mean? It means that the overarching vision for his life isn't limited to what he's doing this weekend. It's not even limited to what's going to happen within the next year or five years, but 50 to 100 years. Long view. His fear and obedience to the Lord on a daily basis have in mind his children's children and their children and their children and their children and their children. children. 
When you are being faithful and obedient to God within the context of your family, it has the potential to become, like that olive grove, an absolute economic, relational, ecclesiological, and spiritual powerhouse. And I'm convinced that's exactly why Satan hates it. Hates it. He's been... He has been, from our first parents, seeking to break up the formula for the creation of immortal souls that God has laid down. He knows that if he can lure women, women away into disrespect and bitterness or laziness, he can lure men away into laziness of their own and lust and abdication and cowardice, he can break up the power of the whole thing. Your great, 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 great grandchildren may not know your name, but if the generations of your family walk in fear and obedience, they will know the name of your God. You may say today, Pastor Kurt, this sounds nothing like my wife. Sounds nothing like my kids, or my finances, or my vision for my own life. And here's the good news. Jesus has come to restore all things, including our marriages, and our families, and our houses. We have our work cut out for us, amen? But it's good work. It's good work. Where sin has abounded... Grace will abound all the more. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Second best time is today. There is a tremendous power and blessing in saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you will fear the Lord and confess to Him, and to your wife, and to your kids, and any other relevant people in your situation, and say, I'm a Christian. It's time for me to start living like a Christian. I've not done well, and I probably won't do very well again very soon, but I want to walk in God's ways. I want to be obedient. That moment is more powerful than all the years of screwing up before it. Don't believe the lie that it's too late. The problem is sin. The problem is not fearing and obeying God. And that's exactly what Jesus died for. He rose from the dead to make all things new. He died for the fact, he died for the fact that you haven't been doing the things that Psalm 128 says, that you, that you haven't obeyed and you haven't feared God. That's what he died for. And what he rose for was everything after that. All the blessings that you have now held in trust for you as an inheritance and the power and ability to obey. You can obey now. You can follow now. It wasn't even possible before, but now you can. By his spirit and by his power and by his church and by his people and by your family. To give you the blessings of Psalm 128 both now 
forevermore. And that's not just true in a general way. It's true in a very specific way for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.